How's it going, everybody? Good. I like when a crowd responds. I asked that this morning at Hillsborough, and it was crickets. So it was very, very, very good. Um, yeah. So I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, I'm excited tonight to teach on uh, really this Foundations of Discipleship series. And so last week, Bucky spent a lot of time talking about how the church is supposed to be this come and see type of people. They're supposed to be this type of people that when you invite people in, it's this point in time where people actually experience who Jesus Christ is because they're around his body. They see how he works in the midst of his people. And so um, tonight we're going to continue on in this series, but I want to start off by talking about the power of words, right? Words are powerful, aren't they? Whether for good or for bad. You know, Proverbs says that death and life is in the power of the tongue. But Proverbs also says that uh, gracious words are like a honeycomb. They're sweet to our souls and they're healing to our bones. So you, you guys have experienced at some point in time in your life what harsh words do to you. You've experienced the death of what words can bring, whether it's gossip, anger, malice, strife, envy that you've, you've been a part of in your life. You've seen the results and you've seen the death that comes. And yet, there's also words that bring life. You know, when you hear that phrase, I love you for the first time, such life happens inside of you, right? When you, when you hear the phrase, like, like for John, like you get a new job tomorrow, dude, it's like, that's a huge deal. That's a huge life-changing thing. You know, when somebody uh, tells you that they accepted the offer on the house that you put in, it's like, that's life-changing for you. So words have that type of power, and tonight I want to look at a two-word phrase that Jesus used often. He used it with every single person in society. He used it for the least of these, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Uh, He used it for those who were really excommunicated from society, like women and children. He used it on the uh, Roman officials and the kings and priests that he came across, those higher up in society. And, And this phrase, he continues to use through the Holy Spirit to each one of us today, if you call yourself a Christian. And that phrase is the phrase, follow me. Follow me, these two powerfully packed words. And tonight we're going to spend some time unpacking that together. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew. So if you want to grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Matthew. But I think the easiest way for us to answer um, really what follow me means is to answer three questions. The first being, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Answering the what question. Essentially, what is it? Second, answering the how question. You know, how, how do we take what we know about being a disciple of Jesus and live it out in our daily lives? And then third is the reason why. Why should we do all this? Why should we be a part of Jesus' discipleship? What's the point of that? So I want to start off by talking about the what question first. So that first question, what does it mean when Jesus calls us to follow him? First, it just, it's an invitation to discipleship. It's Jesus calling us into this relationship that is very twofold. First, we have a relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who is relationship, right? Remember the Genesis series? When we were at Tigard, we heard some of that. When we were here, we heard some of that. But in the Genesis series, we learned that God is not just this solo old dude with a, with a, a, you know, sitting on a throne with a beard. How can we can, you know, picturize him? But he is a God of relationship. He's the Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship together. And that's the God that we get to enjoy when Jesus invites us to follow me. And the second type of relationship that we get is with each other, other disciples. You see, it wasn't just Peter hanging out with Jesus. It wasn't just Peter and him hanging out. Or it wasn't just Andrew and Jesus hanging out. It was the 12 hanging out together with Jesus. 
So as we are the come and see type of people, that when we invite people in, we are also invited into relationship with each other. And so as we take a look at the what of what discipleship is, essentially that's what it is. There's these two different types of relationships that we have. First with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and second with us as the church. But not only being a disciple gives you new relationships, but it also gives you new patterns of life. You see, historically speaking, there's a lot of forms of discipleship that took place during Jesus' day. You have the Greco-Roman world, you have the Jewish world, and that's all happening in first century Palestine where Jesus is. So when Jesus came on the scene and talked about discipleship, the interesting thing is he's not talking into a vacuum. He's not talking into a void of what discipleship is. He's actually using a concept that these people are very familiar with. He's using a concept that culturally they see all around them. So you have a couple different types of of discipleship that was taking place during Jesus' day. The first is this intellectual discipleship. The sophists, we're probably familiar with them from 1 Corinthians, where Paul's talking about the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. He's directly combating the sophists. The sophists were uh, intellectual disciples. Their goal was to know knowledge and know it well. They were trained in oratory skill. They were trained in rhetoric. And the goal was to win arguments. So if you were that type of disciple, you were a disciple that learned a lot. It was intellect-based. But when it comes to the Jewish side of things, the rabbinical side of things, the rabbinical system of discipleship was more actions-based, actions-oriented. So you would, the, the phrase is very familiar in the Jewish world, but it, it, this phrase really sums up what Jewish discipleship meant. And this phrase was, be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So as you're walking down the road with your rabbi, the, the goal is to have his dust just caked up all over you. It just, it's a show that you're following your rabbi closely. Or in, you know, the first century world, uh, a a teacher would sit in a chair and everybody else would take, you know, a seat on the ground. Kind of like we do in like a children's ministry, right? The teacher would sit down, open a book. That's very much so the first century teaching environment. Being a disciple is a person who's committed to a significant master. He's committed to a significant master. And the beautiful part is that as he's committed to being being committed to a significant master... What's crazy is that we get to do that together. He also says that the word disciple is never, ever, ever used in the singular form in the New Testament. It's used in a plural, which means we are disciples together. So what are we called into when Jesus says we are called into relationship with him? We're called into this discipleship relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're called into this discipleship relationship together. And the beautiful part is that our Jesus pursues us in that. But he pursues us not only just to have us, but he pursues us to change us. The goal of discipleship is to be different, right? Whether it's intellectually or whether it's emotionally. You're supposed to be a different person as you follow your rabbi. And so for us, that's the change that we get to experience. That Jesus Christ calls us to himself, and not only does he call us to himself, he wants us to change. And he causes us to change, and that's such a gift. So if that's what discipleship is, following Jesus in a discipleship relationship, how do we live that out? And I think as we talk about this, I think we need to stay away from what specific actions are. Now, oftentimes in sermons, you want to have people say, hey, tell me what to do, Steve. Tell me what to do. Give me some practical steps. I want to give you practical attitudes to have rather than practical actions to take. And here's the reason. 
Every one of us is in different stages of life. You know, I'm a 30-year-old pastor married to young kids. You know, you may be older and you may be retired. That's a different stage of life. You may be starting your first job. You may be getting married soon. I don't know what's going on in your world. But discipleship is formed by attitudes more than it is by actions. And so we have to know what those attitudes are. So I just want to take a look at a couple different passages uh, in, in Matthew to really see what discipleship looks like in the midst of our attitudes. And first, it's this. Being a disciple is costly. Being a disciple is costly. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and it says this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave him orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You see, what's interesting about this passage is that you, you see the cost of discipleship in these two conversations. The first, the disciple comes up and he says, a scribe really, who knows the law and the prophets really, he says, I'll follow you wherever. And Jesus goes, what if I'm homeless? Will you follow me then? What if I'm homeless? You know, foxes have holes. That's their home. Birds have nests. That's their home. But, but I don't have a home. Is that okay? Are you still going to follow me without that? You know, the second disciple comes up and says, hey, I'll follow you, but I need to bury my father first. And Jesus responds with the weirdest of statements. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That would bring me to Jesus, right? If he said that to me, I'm like, yep, I'm going to follow you, dude. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, but culturally speaking, there's only a couple of things this could be. The son has the responsibility when the father is aging to take care of it. But the thing is, we don't know the age of this father. He could be 40. He could be 90. So essentially, some scholars think he's just making an excuse. He's like, I don't want to follow. You know, I got I to bury my father. But he could be alive. But that's an excuse to not follow Jesus. But secondly, as you know, American celebrations last one day. You get married, it's one day. In the Jewish world, you get married, it's a week. You die in the Jewish world, it's a long process. So for us, when we say, let, let the dead bury their own dead, it's like, dude, if the funeral happened, you could follow Jesus now. Uh-uh. That's not in their culture. So it could be another long period of time to, before he even follows Jesus. And yet, we see from this text that following Jesus is costly because Jesus calls us to a price. He calls us to a price. You know, first, the first guy, he says, hey, give up your comforts and your securities and follow me. You know, Jesus doesn't call us to a life of comfort. Jesus didn't have an easy life. His life was one of mission and calling people back to himself. You know, as disciples, we must never let comfort get in the way of our discipleship. We can't. Losing our comfort is actually the price to pay to true discipleship. For many of us, if we're honest, it's so much nicer to have the zeros after the first number in your bank account. Am I right? So much nicer to look in and go, okay, we got a couple thousand in there. Ah, I'm safe. Ah, I'm comforted. I'm secure. This is just one example of where we find comfort and where we find security. And yet, for the disciple of Jesus, our comfort does not come from material. It comes from having the presence of God with us. Remember in the Genesis series, we had the story of Joseph. Joseph's life was horrible. 
Let's just be honest. It was not, it did not go well for him. But what's the constant thread in the text? That God was with Joseph. So even in the midst of the, the, his life and how hard it was, the comfort that he had was not from what he had around him, but from who was with him. So for us, what are the comforts? What are the, what are the securities that we are finding that's not Jesus? You know, second, this guy had plans. The second guy, you know, I had to go bury my own father. He had plans that he had to do. But sometimes, if we're not careful, our plans become a subtle way for us controlling our lives. It's very subtle, but that can be the reality. To where, you know, you can have a plan for college, you can have a plan for retirement, you can have a plan for vacations, whatever. But what happens when God changes your plan? Do you still follow or do you try to grab control again and say, God, I want control of my life? Because following Jesus is costly. He asks us to give, give up our comfort, give up our plans, give up our security, give up our safety in order to follow him fully. That's what discipleship looks like. Second will be in Matthew chapter 10. Being a disciple also means walking in self-denial. It says this in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace with a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, this context is really unique. This context is Jesus telling the 12 disciples that they're going to now become the 12 apostles. They're sent out two by two, sheep amongst wolves, that whole conversation, can't bring anything with you type of thing. And he says, hey, remember, when you follow after me, oftentimes it brings peace. Sorry, oftentimes it brings a sword and not peace. And see, this is, this is a hard thing for us to kind of get because in this context, self-denial actually means tribulation in our relationships. Think about it. This works great if you think about how a Muslim comes to faith in Christ. If you come from a Muslim background and you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your family disowns you. You are done. But in the midst of that, if you're done with your family and you didn't want to choose self-denial, you could deny Christ and go right back to your family. But sometimes following Christ in costly discipleship means that you actually have to deal with relational turmoil. I mean, everybody jokes, it's like, you know, the, there's always turmoil between the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law or whatever. That's all the whole in-law thing. We all have issues when it comes to our families, right? But this is talking about following Jesus in the midst of relational tension. And a part of being a follower of Jesus is knowing how to deny yourself in the midst of that. Because I don't know about you, I don't like confrontation. If I can, I can smooth things over and make things cool. But what if that means I'm actually not following Jesus in that moment because I'm not standing up for him or I'm not talking about him or I'm not responding appropriately to wrong things in my life? Following Jesus sometimes means relational turmoil. And denying yourself in the midst of that is saying, God, I don't need to have perfect relationships with other people. I want to be faithful with you. And like Romans 12 says, I'm going to be at peace with all men as long as it depends on me. 
And that's a part of following Jesus in a really, really costly way. So I want to ask you, how are you dying to yourself? You know, relational turmoil is just one example, but how are you dying to yourself? As a disciple, it's central to our discipleship to die to ourselves, to let our flesh go. A.W. Tozer writes in this book called The Pursuit of God. And in this book, he talks about dying to yourself should feel like the ripping of flesh. It hurts. And if it doesn't hurt, maybe we're not dying to ourselves yet. Maybe we're really not truly dying to the desires that come against God and his purposes. And yet for a disciple, it involves dying to yourself. Let's take a look at Matthew 19 for this final thing. Being a disciple involves sacrifice. It involves a lot of sacrifice. We all know the story of the rich young ruler. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All of these things I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, here's a snapshot of that very familiar story, right? He wants eternal life. He comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I'm killing it at life, buddy. I'm doing a great job here. What else do I need to do? And Jesus says, follow the law and commandments. Killing it, doing a great job there. What else do I need to do? And he says, one thing. Sell everything you have and follow after me. And this young ruler walked away depressed because he couldn't give up his stuff. You know, what's crazy about this context is this. Jesus was offering this man true riches, but he turned it down. Jesus was offering him true riches, but he turned it down. He couldn't part with that. He couldn't sacrifice in order to have a relationship with Jesus. You see, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid for, right? And he frames it so beautifully in this idea of rich and poor. He says that though he was rich, he became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich. So Jesus left everything, all of the worship that he was receiving, all of the praise and glory, And he said he didn't hold on to those things. He didn't hold on to being the nature of God, something to be grasped. But he left it all and became a man. And he died on the cross for our sins. Jesus sacrificed for us. But see, that's what the rich young ruler didn't see. That the riches of being found in Christ was nothing compared to the riches of this world that he saw. And yet, here's the key. For us who understand this, that when we are truly rich in Christ, we can be sacrificial people. When we know all that we have, when we look at Ephesians 1 and see that we're, we're loved, we're holy, we're appointed before the foundations of the world, when we see those things and we live in those things and we know that we're loved by the Beloved and we're loved by Him, we can give up whatever because we have Him, right? We have Him. We have true riches in Him. But see, here's the danger. If we forget all the riches we have in Christ, we can allow the riches of this world to to really draw us away from what is truly rich, which is relationship with him. So in what ways are you and I like the rich young ruler, right? Here's a beautiful thing. We can be honest. This is church. 
we are all not doing great, right? Let's just be honest, okay? We all have areas to grow. That's the beauty of the gospel. We can all come together. We can all come to the church and say, hey, guys, where are you growing? Where do you need help? Where can we grow? Let's answer that question together. What are the things that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart right now that needs to change in your discipleship? What's he reminding you of? So how do we follow Jesus? If we answered the what, this is what following Jesus looks like, how, these are the attitudes that we have to have. Now we get into the why. The why for me means everything. If you don't know why you're doing something, don't do it in my opinion. Don't just do something, don't just go through the motions, but know why we're doing what we're doing. So if we were to ask that question, why should we respond to this call to follow Jesus? There's three things. Because he's given us new life, he's given us a new family, and he's given us a new mission. This new life gives us this new identity. All throughout the scriptures, when people met Jesus and he, they responded to the call of follow me, Jesus gave them a new name. Cephas becomes Peter. Levi becomes Matthew. Do you remember a couple, uh, you know, a weeks back, we were talking through the Tower of Babel story and how they wanted to make a name for themselves instead of receiving the better name that they had been given? Same thing with us. We don't need to have a better name. We've been given a name. We've been given an identity that we are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. That's a better name. And that's the new identity we've been given. So we don't have to make a new name for ourselves. We can be who we are. This new life involves having the Holy Spirit of God live inside of you. Ephesians 1 talks about the Holy Spirit being our inheritance for what's to come. It's the reminder, this longing in your soul that this isn't it. There's something more. And what's coming is eternity with Jesus. And remember, the Holy Spirit of God in you is supposed to remind you of that day in and day out. And you have this too. You have the ability to defeat sin's power in your life. I don't know about you, but there's days where I feel hopeless about beating sin. Do you? Do you feel hopeless sometimes about beating the sin that you're so aware of in your life? But yet we have to come back to the Scriptures. What does the Scripture say in Romans 6? That we're dead to sin. What does it say in Romans 8? That we're dead to sin. What does it say in Colossians 3? That we're dead to sin. That the reality is sin is dead within us. The only reason why we, we convey over to sin is because we give it power. We give it power in our lives. The church says this phrase often, and this is a true phrase. We say that we are sinners saved by grace. But Scripture clearly teaches that we are saints who sometimes sin. That's what we have to think through. We are not just sinners who God had such grace upon that we needed to be saved, which is true. Don't hear me wrong. That's orthodox theology. That's real stuff. But all throughout the Bible, you know how Paul addresses believers? He calls them saints. He doesn't go, hey, what's up, Corinthians, wicked sinners? He says, hey, what's up? You guys are saints. You guys are dearly loved. You guys are, are, are made new in Jesus Christ. And with that new identity, you and I need to walk in that power. Hebrews 12 talks about that, that we, we haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding our own blood yet. We haven't followed in our master Jesus' footsteps yet to shed our own blood to not sin. I want to remind you that you have power over sin because of this new life that Jesus walks us into. See, what's beautiful, you have that ongoing prayer in this, in this new life that you have of having the power of the Holy Spirit in you through the filling of the Holy Spirit and working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And you see how he leads you in your life. Ephesians 5 talks about, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
The simple idea is this. When you're drunk, you're controlled by another substance. You're controlled by alcohol. And yet, when you are filled with the Spirit, you're controlled by the person of God. That's the whole idea. You're controlled by Him. And so, for the Christian, this new life involves waking up every day and saying, Holy Spirit, would you fill me afresh today? Would you fill me afresh so that I can walk in this power? You know, I mentioned this, you know, the last sermon I preached here, but John Stott wrote that little book, Baptism in Fullness. It's 90 pages. Read it. It's amazing. And in it, his whole theme is repentance is the road to recovery. It's the road. That's how we get to have fullness with Jesus when we confess our sins and realize we're, we're stuffing the Holy Spirit into this closet in comparison to our whole house, letting him rule and reign over all of us. And there's more power and there's more leading that we're supposed to have in this new life. You know what's crazy? We read the book of Acts and we don't think the Holy Spirit can still lead us like that. All throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, go here, do this, talk to that person. And what does it come from? It comes from asking to be filled with the Spirit so that he might lead you. We're not doing this alone. The Holy Spirit is leading us into this new life. And this is powerful, powerful stuff that can change how you live today. So not only has he called us to have this new life, but he's given us a new family. The church is this beautifully broken family, isn't it? It's this beautifully broken family. Many of us don't have hope today that we're changing. Many of us don't have hope today that we are being any different. Let me remind you that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. You are growing today. You don't see growth happen. You don't look at a tree and go, oh, it's growing. But 10 years later, you go, oh, it grew. That's what happens for us all the time. I want to remind you that you're in a state of growth, and we get to do that together in this beautiful family. We're a part of the body of Christ where, where, where I stink, Jonathan is good. Or where Chris stinks, sorry, buddy. But, like, Teresa's doing well, you know? Like, that's the beauty about the church is that each one of us has strength and weaknesses, and we're gifted in different ways so that we can be that come-and-see people that Bucky talked about last week. So they can come in and see what the love of Jesus looks like because they're in our midst. This new family. And see, have you ever looked at your blood family and thought you were missing something? Not like the village idiot thing. Not like there's a dude lost in your family, you can't find them. But yeah, like it, did you ever look at your family and go, there's something not there? Like did you have an absentee dad, like your dad wasn't around? You know the beautiful thing about coming into the church is? There's lots of dads here who can love you and serve you and help walk you through life. Were you an only child and longed to have brothers and sisters? Welcome to your brothers and sisters. We are a forever family. Here's what that means. We got to work at this. We're going to see each other forever, which means we have to work on our relationships now so that we can have good, healthy, loving friendship relationships so that when people come in, they go, holy cow, these people are so different, and yet they're so loving. What is that? And then we get the point to Christ. We are shaped by God's love for one another in this room. We are shaped by it. But the question is, do we want to be shaped by it? That takes vulnerability to open ourselves up to a new family and say, hey, here's where I'm struggling. Hey, don't judge me. It's the nature of human nature, right? You want to judge each other. Don't let that happen here. Don't let that happen in the church. Because we are the family of God who gets to do this thing together. 
And I think for me, and I think throughout the whole scriptures, the most exciting part about all of this is that not only do we have a new life, but not only have a new family, we have a new life to have a new family to be on a new mission together. That's what we're about. This mission is the most exciting thing that you can ever be a part of. Ever. It's better than anything you will ever experience in your life. Because you get to go to work with Jesus every single day. You do. You get to experience what God is doing in this world, reconciling the world back to himself. You and I get to be those ambassadors, 2 Corinthians says, that gets to go into all the world and tell the enemies of God that they can be friends. They can be friends again. Okay, I need some group participation, and all of you just had chills of fear, okay? All of you, I want you to raise your hand if this is true of you, okay? Do you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Great. Put your hands down. Do you consider yourself to be a disciple maker for Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. Stop. Did you see how many less hands went up when I said that? It's like immediate. But here's the problem in the church. The problem in the church is that we don't realize that I just asked you the same question. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a disciple maker for Jesus Christ. He calls us that. And this is what we get to be a part of. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus and you are not actively pursuing making disciples, then our idea of discipleship is not the biblical idea. Jesus calls us to make disciples. He says, go and make disciples, not just attend a church meeting. Go and make disciples, not just go to community group. Go and make disciples, not just live in a self-focused, self-protecting place. You see, here's why this matters. This matters in the church because we measure maturity by everything else but multiplication. If you have this killer, amazing prayer life, like A.W. Tozer has nothing on you, you know what I'm saying? Like you get in a closet and God meets with you. We consider that maturity. You know, if you're mature when you have massive theological depth and you can quote the reformers, John Calvin this, John Knox that, whatever, all the Johns. They're all named John, which is weird. But you have all these guys that you can have theological depth. You're mature when you respond to the Holy Spirit, Right? You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think I missed one, but it doesn't matter. Like, that's when you, we, we look at ourselves and say, hey, we're maturing. Hear me in this, though. I'm not saying that that's not, not a part of Christian maturity. What I'm saying is that we should not measure maturity by it. And here's the reason. We, ha- we pray, we have theological depth, we understand the scriptures, we respond like Christ so that others might meet him. Jesus came to save the lost. Jesus came to save people, and he invites us into that. But see, this principle of maturity and and multiplication, we we see it all over the world. It's not just a part of the Christian church. We see it all over the world. How do you know somebody is physically able and mature? They can reproduce. If you have the ability to reproduce, you are physically mature. The same thing goes for the church. If, If we... If we are reproducing by seeing new disciples come to faith in Jesus Christ and we see them grow up, we are maturing as a body. We are replicating as a body. But you see, the same is true if we look at the negatives. We know if somebody can't reproduce physically, if there's like a physical, biological problem that that, that you really can't reproduce, we know there's something wrong. But yet we don't apply the same thing to the church. 
that in the church, if we are not about making disciples and people are not coming to faith in Christ, you see the beautiful thing? It's not about Bucky. It's not about me. It's not about any other leaders in here. It's about us being the church together. And as the church together, we get this opportunity to make disciples of Jesus, each one of us, because we are all disciple makers. And if we are honest with ourselves, there's just days where we don't, right? There's just days where we don't consider ourselves a disciple maker. But I want to remind you that being a disciple means you have everything that you need through the power of the Holy Spirit to see lost people become saved in your life and bring them to faith in Christ. You have that ability. And if you don't see that, I beg of you to see that tonight. Because there's a mission that God has called us into. You can open up your mouth and talk about Jesus to others. You can demonstrate him through your actions. You can invite them into the community known as Colossae Sherwood and they get to see Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. You're going to do that horribly. And God's going to be horribly faithful to you. We are not going to be perfect at this making disciples thing. But we're going to sure as heck give it an effort. Because the Spirit of God enables us for this ministry. If there's one thing that I want to give my life for, for the rest of my life, it's this. Preaching the Bible, seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and seeing the average Christian feel like they're not a disciple maker, see them become a disciple maker. Because that's what Jesus called us to in discipleship. And each one of us get to be a part of this beautiful, beautiful mission. So what needs to change today? What, what's the Holy Spirit putting on your mind as I'm talking? The beautiful thing is not about what I'm saying, it's about what the Holy Spirit has already said. So as I talk, the Spirit of God in this room is causing you to think about what you need to change. And again, the beautiful thing, we're all changing. There's no awesome face here, we're all growing. And God is faithful to grow us. All of this comes from two powerful words. All of it. Discipleship comes from Jesus calling us to follow him. So how are you going to follow him? How are you going to respond to this? Marcus is going to come up. We're going to sing some songs. But I just want to pray for us. Because here's the deal. We're a, we're a new church, right? We're like 10 weeks into this thing, and it's super exciting. But since we're 10 weeks in, I want to just keep that vision central for us. That each one of us, there's nobody on the sidelines here. Everybody is called to ministry. Everybody is gifted for ministry of disciple-making, whether you're an extrovert, introvert, like people, hate people, don't matter. Like, God will use you. And that's the gift, that we all get to be about this together. So let me pray for us. Let's sing together, and then let's respond by having a great meal and having communion, all right?